We ended that song with that phrase, Jesus, you're everything I need. It's kind of hard a phrase to say for some people. Um, for some individuals might say, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure, I'm, I'm totally there. Uh, others would say, yeah, I totally own it. Um, I, th- I think as a result of what we're going to look at this morning, that phrase, Jesus is all you need, is going to be even more real to you. We're working through the book of Hebrews, if, if you haven't been here for a little while, and uh, we're all the way up to chapter 3 now, and we've been in it for six weeks, so we're, we're moving along, and I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bible, if you would, to Hebrews 3 and verse 1, that's where we're going to start out. I had a kind of an anchor verse for myself this week, and it, it's from Hebrews 12. I'm just going to pop it up on the screen for you, Hebrews 12, 2. It says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. There's a potential that I'm going to get in your face this morning. And uh, you might say, well, what's new? Um, I'd say I'm going to be all up in your business this morning, okay? Uh, Because of this text, not because of me, but because of what this text has to say to you about how you view religion and how you view religiosity. And perhaps you're going to see a correlation between yourself and these first century Hebrews. Here's the problem that uh, we find in chapter 3. In the mind of the first century Jew, everything important about God was connected through Moses. They held Moses to such a high regard, you might even say they gave him God-like status. So there's a reason why the author, as we've discovered in chapter 1, said Jesus is better than the angels, because they held the angels to really high esteem. Well, there's a reason now why he makes his case in chapter 3 that Jesus is better than Moses, because Moses was even that much higher than the angels in their mind. The fact is, Moses was great. He was a really great man, but a bit too great in their minds, and they were too devoted to Moses, too much ritual, too much of the sacrificial system. Too much religiosity had controlled and dominated their world. You might say they went to the church of Moses on a weekly basis. And they showed up and went through the functions. So I'm going to show you this morning that Jesus is really better than religion. You might even say, depending on your background, Jesus is better than church. Let me clarify that for you as we go into verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Now, the word therefore starts out in verse 1. So what is he doing? He's reaching back to everything that we've learned so far. Chapter 1, chapter 2, that Jesus is better than the angels, that, that we've got this clarity of Jesus restoring our dominion. So he's taking us back saying, therefore, because of all the things I've said so far, and he starts writing specifically to a group of people. Do you notice who? He says, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling. Well, who is that? It's Christians. He's talking to the church. He's talking specifically to the first century church in this case, but talking to the church universal. Because unbelievers can't claim that. They can't claim they share in the heavenly calling. Believers share in the heavenly calling, so we know he's writing to believers. And he says, consider Jesus. 
Now, that might cause you to ask a question. Why would he say that? If this is the church and they're believers, why is he telling the church to consider Jesus? Haven't they done that already? Aren't they already there? That must mean that word is considerably important. Here's the problem. They're looking at Jesus with one eye, and they've got their other eye focused on their former life. The things that were familiar and safe and comfortable to them. Here's the situation if you haven't been here for a couple weeks. The book of Hebrews is being written to a group of individuals who are being killed for the name of Jesus. The gladiators are literally dragging them into the Colosseum. Nero, the Caesar, is using them for nightlights. They're dying for the name of Christ. And because they see that Judaism, what they knew before, is sanctioned by Rome, it's a safe place. They could go back to that so easily. But the author is saying, consider Jesus. Well, this word considers this word katanoeo. And there's a few words in your notes this morning on the right-hand side, but this is one that I'm going to put up on the screen because it's so important to this passage, these, these six verses that we're going to look at this morning. It literally means to consider in such a way that you discover, but not just discovering as though it's just some newsflash and interesting tidbit of truth, but that you would discover it with continuous observation. In other words, keeping your focus on Jesus. The idea is put your focus on Him and let it remain there. This is the way Dr. Wearsby summed it up. I want you to see his quote. He said this, The word means to understand fully. This is no quick glance at Jesus It is a careful consideration of who He is and what He has done. Why? Because He's greater than the angels. Because He's the one who is the author of our salvation. He's the one who is restoring our lost destiny. He's the one who is our sanctifier. As we discovered last week, He's our Satan conqueror. And so therefore, He alone is qualified for the full focus of our attention. Our full consideration. Especially pertinent to us in 2014 when there's a temptation for one eye to be on Jesus and another eye to be on career, money issues, health issues, relationship issues. The author is saying what is as pertinent to them is as pertinent to us. Jesus is all you will ever need. That's how we ended that song. He's all that you need. Well, I'm going to make a case for that this morning. Look with me at that verse very closely. In verse 1, he says, he calls Jesus the apostle and the high priest. Now you might be thinking, wait, I, I thought I knew who the apostles were. I mean, James and John, and Peter, Thaddeus. Aren't those the, 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 the apostles? Well, here's the reason he uses that phrase. There's certain characteristics of an apostle, and the number one is that an apostle is a person who is sent, the one that goes out when the, the sender sends them. Okay, So Jesus is the one who was sent from heaven. And he speaks with the power and the authority of God. That's why he's calling him an apostle. He's going on behalf of the one who sent him. Jesus said this about himself, John 12, 49. I did not speak in my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment, what to say and what to speak. So, okay, we get that. Why does he call Jesus the high priest? Well, what's the high priest's job? To connect man to God and God to man. So you see the high priest title being played out here. That makes sense to us. Now we understand the apostle and the high priest. Why does he call that? Well, at this point, now he's going to introduce Moses. So he ends with verse 2 saying, just as Moses was faithful. That gets the attention of the first century readers. 
That's going to resonate with them because they hold Moses in such high regard. This is an individual whom they have in such high esteem for us today. It's like invoking the name of Abraham Lincoln around election time. Did you ever notice that both political parties do that? Well, I shouldn't say both. There's more than two. But they all do it. They start invoking the name of Abraham Lincoln around election time. Why? Because they know the American public holds Abraham Lincoln in such high regard. Well, the same is true when they start speaking of Moses in the first century. There's no higher standard. He's the high watermark. And he knows his audience. So what you'll notice here is the writer makes no derogatory statements whatsoever about Moses, even though he could, because Moses was a man with failures. But he doesn't do that. In other words, he holds him in high honor because the Jews hold him in high honor. So we ask ourselves the question, was Moses faithful? Absolutely. Look what God said about Moses. Numbers 12.7 My servant Moses is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth. Now the writer of Hebrews in chapter 3 verse 2 said, in all God's house. We need to understand God's house because right away some of you are thinking, was he talking about the church building? God's house has a very specific meaning when it's used in the Bible. And it's not talking about a building. Here it's saying very specifically a family. So it's this word oikios. And this word refers to a household, a group of people. Well, in the Old Testament... The believers, the Old Testament believers, were the household of God, known as the house of Israel. And it's true today in the church. We're known as the household of God. We're the church. So to really appreciate this issue of how high esteem they have for Moses, we need to dig down into their view of him just a little bit. I'm going to do that with you through verse 3. So go there with me to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 3. And it says this, "...for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses." as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Verse 4, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now I told you that Moses was revered by the first century Jews, but maybe you've never appreciated to what level? Higher than Daniel. Higher than Isaiah. Higher than Abraham. Now, at first glance, you might say, well, okay, I get that. Think about that, though. Think about how high of regard, even in the church today, we have for Daniel, Isaiah, Abraham. And Moses is notches above them. Why? Where, Where does that stem from? Well, because at his birth, God protected him and preserved his life. At his death, God personally dug his grave and chose the burial spot for him. And in between those two markers in his life, miracle upon miracle upon miracle, God working through him. Matter of fact, this is what Dr. Pink said about that in 1954. He said, the hand of God preserved him as a babe, and the hand of God dug his grave at the finish. Between those two terms, he passed through the strangest and most contrastive vicissitudes, which surely any mortal has ever experienced. The honors conferred upon him by God were much greater than any bestowed upon any other man before or since. Anybody use the word vicissitudes in your language this week? And you're thinking, what does it mean? I'm not going to tell you. Look it up. See, here's the truth. Moses had seen the glory of God, literally seen it. And to such a degree, it was reflected in his own skin. You think, ladies, your skin glows when you put makeup on? 
This guy's face was effervescent. It glowed with the radiance of God. Look at Scripture. It says literally this, Exodus 34, 9. The skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. Now, what do we know about Moses? He got in the face of Pharaoh. He literally went to the world's most powerful ruler and demanded that he release his entire economic security base. Picture yourself today making a journey to North Korea. That you would go to North Korea and stand in the presence of Kim Jong-un. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. This guy is such a dictator, so brutal, that he kills people willingly. Moses walked into the world's most powerful leader, stood in his palace and said, I want you to let all the prisoners go. Can you envision yourself doing that today in 2014 and standing before a world leader and saying, I want you to let them go? And that that world leader would eventually respond? That's this guy. That's Moses. No wonder we begin to see why they held him in such high regard. God brought all the plagues through him. He led Israel out of Egypt. He literally stood at the shore of the Red Sea when the ocean opened up and they walked across on dry land. This man not only stood in front of the Ark of the Covenant, he oversaw the construction of the Ark of the Covenant. This is a guy who's highly revered. He's the one man to whom God spoke face to face. Exodus 33.11 The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face just as a man speaks to his friend. How did he do that? Well, through the burning bush on Mount Sinai. We also know that he literally talked to him at the Ark of the Covenant as he stood in front of it. The Bible refers to the commands of God as the law of Moses. There's nothing in the Bible that says the law of Mark or the law of Jimmy or the law of Tom, the law of Moses. That's how high of regard they have for this man. So when the writer of Hebrews begins to say, Jesus is deserving of more honor and more glory, and he's higher, you know that he's truly great. Why? Because Moses was faithful, but he was part of the house. Jesus made the house. As a matter of fact, according to Scripture, John 1.3, everything that has been made, that is made, was made by Jesus. He made Israel. So we understand that's why he's making this argument. And so in verse 3 and verse 4, he says, the builder of the house is worthy of more honor than the house itself. Verse 4 says, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. He's making a powerful argument here for the deity of Jesus. Because literally, if God builds all things, and we know that he does, and Jesus built God's house, then Jesus must be God. So the contrast is really clear. Moses was a servant in the house. Jesus is over the house. Moses was great. Jesus is far greater. Go with me to verse 5. It says this, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Just kind of a little detail, but when you look at that, you see that I underlined the word in. Moses was faithful in the house. Jesus is over the house, as you're going to see in verse 6. But I underlined also the word servant, and here's why. Especially in churchdom, if you grew up in in the church, you have a, a familiarity with the word servant, and we think we know what it means. We think of a person who was taken perhaps as a slave, forcibly brought into somebody's household, and made to serve them. But one place and only one place in the entire New Testament is the word therapon used, and it's right here. Servant, in this case, is therapon. 
And it literally means a servant who is held in high regard because he came willingly with his heart. See, Moses at first resisted God. But eventually, he got to the point where he was so devoted to God, he obeyed out of devotion, and he did everything that was asked of him. Deuteronomy 34.11 says this, He did all the signs and wonders the Lord has sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, all his servants in the whole land, and he displayed great power and awesome might in the view of all Israel. Why is this guy hammering so much the faithfulness of Moses? Why is he spending so much time on it? Well, specifically because of the last part of verse 5. It says to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, meaning that Moses' faithfulness was not just for his own time. His life was about more than his life. He's speaking to the things in the future. He's faithful to speak to the things which are yet to come in Christ because Judaism without Jesus is incomplete. Your life without Jesus is incomplete. That's the argument that he's making here. So in their case, Judaism was just a silhouette. It was just a shadow, a forerunner of the true thing coming. Look with me at Scripture. Hebrews 10.1 says this, For the law, what was given us through Moses, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. See, it's the shadow. It's just the forerunner. That's why Jesus said, hey, you guys, when you're reading about Moses and the things that he wrote, he's writing about me. Uh, look with me, literally on the screen, Jesus said this, John five forty six. for if you believe Moses... You would believe me, for he wrote of me. Now, remember our theme. We're coming into the last verse, verse 6. Our, our theme is Jesus is better. And we've established that Moses is a servant. Now we're about to see that Jesus is a son. And a son is far greater than a servant. Verse 6 says this, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house indeed if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now he's adding an explanation there about what the building materials are that make up God's house. You've already been told that the church, we are God's house. And so he's emphasizing down here, we are his house. And many people think of God's house as being the church building that we worship in. Well, the truth is we could worship in a tent. We could meet outside we would still be the church. The church is the people of God. His house is not a building, but it's believers. We are the Lord's house. 1 Timothy 3.15, the household of God, which is the church of the living God. That's us speaking about the church. So on the heels of that, let me rabbit trail with you for just a moment. This is where I'm going to kind of get in your face. Is it possible that in 2014, we can hold the functions of the church to such a high regard that it can block our view of Jesus? Is it possible that religiosity in itself can become very self-serving? See, my anchor verse, Hebrews 12:2, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes not on religion, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher or the perfecter of our faith. Here's the reason why this is so important. 
Jesus said anybody who wants to worship the Father, truly worship the Father, is going to do so in spirit and in truth. In other words, not in rituals and not in ceremonies. At times, we're tempted to think that religious trappings are really important because it makes us feel comfortable. In my church where I grew up as a kid, Swedish Evangelical Covenant Church, here's the longer term, the Mission Swedish Evangelical Covenant Church. Why such a long name, I don't know. But there was a tradition in my church, and they still do it today. Um, I grew up as a child in it. Every week when the offering was taken, and, and by that, if you're not familiar with church, I mean when they collected money, they passed the plate, and people gave to the church. The uh, ushers would stand at the end of the row, the plates would come in, and then the ushers would go in the back and dump all the money into a couple plates. And then two guys would stand at the back, and they would begin walking back up the aisle. So they'd, they'd come all the way up with plates in their hands. And as they get to the front, they'd begin putting the plates down, and the entire church, boom, would stand to their feet. Nobody had to tell them to do it. They just did it. And what did they do? They began this. Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. No, 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 no. You know what I'm talking about? Religion that's empty. Because as a teenager, I stood and watched that. And it was dead. I mean, I watched guys and I watched women whom looked like there was no life there. See, Jesus is better than that, church. Jesus is better than ritual and religion. Do you think God's honored by us just standing and doing rote memory or or by just singing songs with no passion? Jesus is better than that. That's what they're facing in the first century. They're so caught up in this ritual of sacrifices, going to the temple. Their identity was in their function. And so their identity was not in Christ. So that's why he's making such a strong argument for them. Get your mind off religion and rituals. See, it's not just the unsaved who need to consider Jesus. If you're a saved person this morning, you're a believer in Jesus, you might be thinking right now, well, why do I need to consider Jesus? I'm already a believer. I already know who he is. Here's the truth, including Mark Kring. All of us are far from discovering all that he is. It's just the truth of Scripture. So let me ask you a question, self-evaluation this morning. Do you personally know more of Jesus today than you did a year ago at this time? If that's the case, praise God, because you have been considering Jesus. You're increasing in your walk, in your knowledge, in your understanding. You're spending time digging into His Word. That's what the author is talking about here. So the Spirit is saying, keep focused on Him, not on the rituals. Whatever ritual it might be for you, you've got the supreme reality of Jesus. Keep your eyes on Him. Do you know that was Paul's great struggle? Now, Paul, I think by anybody's measure, is going to look at him as one of the authors of Scripture and knowing what we know about his journey and would say, man, I hold that guy in really high regard. Maybe even we do with Paul what they did with Moses. We hold this guy in such high esteem. But Paul struggled with this exact same issue. Look with me at Philippians 3.10. He said, 
My great desire is to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ. There's a reason so many people are weak in their faith. And the reason is they do not keep considering Jesus. They spend no time in God's Word. And, and their life with God is summed up by church on the weekend. They never get to the point where they know His full power and His full strength. And it's what He promises us in His Word. Why am I yelling at you? I like you guys. I don't mean, sorry. <laughs> I repent, Father. I, I, I want it to resonate with you, though, to understand it is so crucial that we keep our eyes on Jesus. So verse 6 ends up this way. And it is, it's an important ending, so don't tune out. Don't start reaching for your car keys just because I said it's the last verse. It says in verse 6, we are His house if indeed. You might want to circle the word if in your Bible. It's the if clause. And some people have really stumbled over it. It looks like, if I, let me read the full part for you. We are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. It looks like there's a chance that we might not be His house, doesn't it? At first glance, when you look at it, you would say, whoa, is that saying that I might not be a believer in Jesus if I fail to do those things? Let me clarify it for you because it does not mean you're not saved if you can't hang on to, to what you might be thinking of. It may, let me clarify this for you. Your salvation is not dependent upon you. Jesus is the finisher, the perfecter of your faith. It's not dependent upon you. What is dependent upon you is to do a self-examination. There's a very clear truth in Scripture that Jesus keeps us and will not lose us. This is what it says in John 6.39. And this is the will of Him, Jesus speaking, who sent me, that of all He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. So Jesus has never lost anyone. He never will lose anyone. So this passage is really telling us something about our own walk with Christ. Because He's writing to believers. So in verse 6, He says, We are His house if indeed we hold fast to our confidence. Confidence is a really crucial part of your walk with Christ. This word confidence literally is talking about freedom of speech. Where do you speak most freely during the course of your week? Where do you talk with the most boldness? Home, yeah. I know you're hesitant to say it, but it's true, isn't it? It's where we're most blunt. It's where we're most frank. Some of us are too blunt and too frank at home. But the sense of this word here is literally coming from the sense of being at home where words flow freely. It's this word parousia. The last word I'm going to bring up this morning. And it's an all-out spokenness, a frankness, a boldness. What's this author saying? We are indeed part of his household when we speak with confidence, when we hold on to our confidence. This word confidence also means boldness in the sense of how a believer approaches God. Did you know that you can come to God the Father in your prayer life 
in the exact same manner in which you speak to your family members in your home? With that kind of frankness and boldness? Matter of fact, this is what it says in Scripture. Hebrews 4.16, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence, that's that word, parousia, to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. See, when you speak with openness and when you speak with freedom, it's because you have no fear. Why do we have no fear, church? Because of Jesus. This is what Scripture says, Hebrews 10.19. We have confidence, there's that boldness again, we have parousia, to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now, you may not think you can talk to God like you talk to your family members, but you literally can talk to the Father and say, Father, I screwed up this week. I did blank. And He's not going to kick you out of the house because you're His son or His daughter. See, your dad doesn't kick you out of the house for being honest with him. And that's what we're being told here. So our confidence is in Jesus. And so as a result, we've got this confidence. We hold fast to our confidence. How does he end verse 6? By saying, and boasting in our hope. Well, what is our hope? Our hope very clearly is, is resulted, uh, the result of our position in God's house. It's something that we can be proud of. So he says you can boast about it. Not because of something that you did, but because of what Jesus did. Our hope is our confidence that God will carry out His promises because God never lies. And everything that He said He will do, He will do. That means His promises to take you to glory one day. That means His promises to forgive you of your sin. So what we're talking about here is your continuance is proof of the reality. Meaning that if you're bold to speak, and you're confident in your relationship, you're doing that because there's no fear. There's no fear because you know you're part of the household and you're speaking of your hope. That's what this writer is saying. You're holding on to your confidence and your boldness. There's a true mark of believers that you need to consider this morning. And I I wanted to include it in your notes as well because many people struggle with whether or not they're really Christians. Are they, am I really a believer? They, they look at passages like this and say, well, maybe that's true of me. How can I really know I'm in God's house? Well, first of all, look at John 8.31. It says this, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Well, what's his word? I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Did you guys grow up in church singing that song? Some of you know that. It's the word. God's word. Well, that's one indicator But I put in your notes this morning 10 facets of salvation. Things that you can look at and gauge yourself to know whether or not you're truly in the household of God. Are these things that are true of you? Why do I ask you to do that? Well, because of these last two things I want to leave you with. First, number one, be sure you are in Christ. In other words, take a spiritual selfie, do an examination. That's what Scripture is saying, 2 Corinthians 13.5. Look at it very closely. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. That last part, I didn't add that. That's part of the Bible. It says, examine yourselves, exclamation point. Take a picture of yourself. Test yourselves to see, are you really part of the household of God? And that, once we're sure we're in Christ, number two says, when we know we're in Christ, keep our eyes on Him. Consider 
Jesus. That's why Hebrews 12.2, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. See, we look at him because we know why we are running. It gives life purpose. It gives us meaning. We look at him to know where we are running to instead of running scattered. And we look at him because he gives us the power to run. That's what Hebrews 3 is saying. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Would you pray with me about that? Let's pray together. Father, we're, we're clearly declaring our need to keep our eyes focused on you and how hard it can be at times. And this song that we're about to do together as a church, we want to lift up before you as a song of proclamation about who we are and about who you are. Recognizing that we are the redeemed. I know, Father, that you look upon us right now in this auditorium as a gathering of people who have named the name of Jesus, who have confessed with their own mouth that they're further along in their walk today than they were a year ago. Because we continue to consider you and keep our eyes on you, help that to be true of us as we move forward through this week, that as a result, we would speak boldly and confidently and that we would boast in our hope. Let us speak of the one who redeemed us. Father, I ask that you would empower your people to do that and that you would bless them for the the result of having spent time here with you today to consider you. But God, don't let it end with today. Don't let us be guilty of religion. But Father, to be known for relationship. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.